And we turn to Ephesians again. And I'm doing something new today. I, I'm going to do it. I was just making sure you hadn't already done it, and I was about to click past it. Uh, we get accused of being technologically forward sometimes. That's kind of funny to me because I'm backwards coming to uh, these kind of things. But uh, I think we should be able to, yeah, there it is. I should be able to control the computer now from the pulpit and give you an outline. Now, some parameters, okay? Some of you inside are saying, yes, an outline. I don't want you to leave here gaining an outline and not seeing Christ. So if you don't like, if it doesn't help you, just ignore it. Don't write it down and just focus on Christ. But some of you, that, that's how your mind thinks. And so you thought all these years I haven't had an outline. And I have. I just didn't put it up there. You know, mainly because the people back there either fall asleep while I'm preaching or, or they get wrapped up in what I'm preaching or I don't make the point clear enough. It could be any of those things or all of those things. And then there's two points gone. I've announced the third point. They go, oh my, I didn't even know he went through those other ones and they all pop up there you know and then everybody's like whoa where'd that come from so now i've got it so if that happens it's my fault right nobody else's and everybody can worship nobody's tied down to a computer going oh what do i do that's that's why we're doing it from here it's not to show off or be cool or any of that we're just going to try it i did it on july the third because it's the fourth weekend i figured it would be like 10 people here and there's more people here than that so you just have to suffer through it's my first run at it If it's too distracting, we'll stop. We've been looking at Ephesians chapter 3. and We've been studying in depth 14 through 17a. That's where we ended last week. And we're going to pick up there in 17b and go through the end of this section. He, He, Paul, that is, he is praying for the church at Ephesus. And we're seeing a reason to pray. Why should I pray? And, I, and, you know, I've, I've given several reasons. The main one being that God is sovereign. You say, but that's the main reason I don't worry about praying, because God's going to do whatever He wants to do. No, that's fatalism. And you've misunderstood the Bible. The Bible implores us because God is sovereign, because, as chapter 1 tells us, before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ and laid out all of the glories of heaven in Christ for us to have as an inheritance because of that, and because He has applied it to us specifically as individuals and as a body of believers who are being built into the temple of God. As Gentiles and Jews were brought together, the temple of God was being constructed, and it is being constructed all over the face of the earth, even to this day. Because those things are true and God is sovereign, we pray. No one can pray. I've said this, and we'll say it again, and it's controversial. No one can pray rightly unless they believe in a sovereign God. What would your prayer be if you don't believe in God as sovereign? Oh God, you know, I know you're not able to do much about it, but my husband's really hard to get along with. I hope one day, coincidentally, he'll wake up and something might actually strike him on TV or in a magazine or in a conversation to help him not be such a hard husband. I know you're not able to do much about it. But if there's anything you might could do, just help him a little. What kind of prayer is that? Is that how you pray? I don't take you women to pray that way for your husbands. 
We have some godly women here who pray for their families. And I would imagine that the prayer sounds more like, Oh God, sovereign of heaven, who has made heaven and earth and has fashioned and formed this marriage. God, it is for your glory. Now take our hearts and weld them together by your grace that we might be a glorious honor to you and bring about your will in our family and in our community. This is the prayer of a person who believes that God has a plan and is working sovereignly in life to bring that plan about. That's an effective prayer. So that was a reason to pray. I gave it to you a couple of weeks ago. We reiterated it again last week and this week. It's not the only reason to pray. We talked about the fact that we pray that God's name might be glorified. So that when His plan comes about, we don't take the credit. God gets all the credit. Prayer is an integral part of any ministry because it wards off pride. Whenever people are baptized, we'll have another baptism next Sunday. It's a glorious thing. And it's easy for ministers and people who are members of the church to start taking credit for those baptisms. Well, we're doing a good thing for Jesus. We got, we're helping people find God. We're doing this and we're doing that. But people who pray often and plead with God who is sovereign understand whenever someone is saved, whenever someone is brought to faith, it is the work of God that has been done. So these are all reasons to pray. Last week we focused mainly on the fact that the reason that we need to be praying is that God would cause the Spirit to empower and strengthen us so that the fullness of Christ would dwell in us richly. So that Christ would dwell in us richly. And we talked about that, and many of you have talked to me during the week about this example, struck home with you, that these are people who are Christians, therefore that Spirit already dwells in them, right? And Christ is already in them, correct? Yes. So what does it mean when Paul says that Christ might dwell in your hearts by faith? What does that mean? Well, I referenced you over to Revelation 3 because I believe what Paul is saying, what John is saying are identical. And that is that God puts the Spirit of God in you at salvation so much so that He is Lord of your life. Christ is Lord of your life at salvation. You're not saved from hell and then later become, He becomes Lord. He is the Lord from the moment He saves you. Okay? But being a kind and gracious and patient Lord, He renovates the heart of human beings through the process of progressive sanctification. I gave the example of a renovated house. A man buys the house, it's his house. And then what does he do? He sets about, step by step, changing the house into what he wants it to be. And that's what Paul's saying. I pray for the church that the Spirit of God might strengthen you, that Christ might dwell in your hearts by faith. He's already there, Paul. Yeah, but I'm talking about that he might grab hold of that dark corner you're still holding on to. He owns it, but now may he make his light shine in that dark corner. That he might wean us from the world and intoxicate us with Christ. That, that's what the text is saying. So we pray because He's sovereign. We pray because we want to be humbled and brought low before Him. We pray so that His name is glorified. We pray. We pray earnestly that He might renovate our hearts, the hearts of the church. These are all reasons to pray. I want to give you three last reasons to pray. The first coming from verse 17b. We pray because our lives are rooted and established in love. Look at the text. It says, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being that you being rooted and grounded in love. Paul uses two metaphors here to show us how we are connected to Christ and have His love. First metaphor is a planting metaphor. He likes to use farming analogies. Don't let them fall flat. Understand them. What he's saying is you are rooted in the love of Christ. The soil from which you draw, the nutrients that cause you to grow and mature in Christ come from the love of Christ. They're not yours. They're His. You're planted into His love. You're planted by His love. You're planted as an exhibit of His love. But the root of your life, if you're a Christian, goes into the soil of Christ's love. You are rooted and established in Christ's love. Established. Now he switched to metaphors. He broke the rules. Anne's an English teacher. He broke the rules, Anne. He mixed metaphors. Good writers don't do that. Great preachers do. <laughs> because he didn't just have farmers in the audience. He had others who understood building analogies better. And so he said, you're rooted in Christ's love. And, and, and I imagine the audience going, that's right. I've, I've got a garden. I've got things that I, in that culture, I'm, I'm a farmer. That's right. I'm, my root is in the love of Christ. That's where it draws all of its wealth of glory. And, it, and my life is established and strengthened and matured by the love of Christ. They got it. And the rest of the people might think, well, that's kind of good. He is the foundation of your life. The love of your, the love of Christ is the foundation of your life. Now the other half of the audience went, aha, I've built a home. We had to have a foundation. It had to be firm. It had to be strong. And that was what we built the strong structure we live in on. I get it. He mixed metaphors. He broke English rules. But it's good preaching. It's good prayer. It's good teaching. We pray because our lives are rooted and established or founded. In love. In love. And I would argue that it's not just talking about some love in general, but this is Christ's love that's being spoken of. And I'll show you why in just a moment. In the text, that's what he focuses on. And I think the focus, the context tells us the focus is not some love, romanticism, idea of love, but rather it's an agape love he's speaking of. He's teaching us that our lives are founded on the love of God and on God's love of us. It's all about Christ's love, God's love. As Christians, we are God's temple. And the temple is grounded in Christ's love. That connects us back up into the text, right? Chapter 2, where we're being built into a temple for the Holy God. His prayer mirrors His text. You're grounded, you're founded on the love of God. You're being built as a temple on the love of Christ. And that goes further by saying, and I might summarize by saying, His love, God's love, supplies all of our nourishment so we may grow in this life to display His love. You cannot love your wife, men, unless you understand that you are loved by Christ. You can't love her fully. Your marriage won't last without Him. Because all human relationships break down at some level, right? 
The person you think you love the most in the world will hurt you more than anyone else in the world. And when that hurt enters, if your, lo- if your life is founded on anything but the love of Christ, your marriage will dissolve. Your friendship will dissolve. The relationship you think could never dissolve, the relationship you have with your family, like your children, it will go away. Even the love of a mother has limits. But the love of Christ has no limits. So we, as the church, are being built, rooted into the love of Christ so that it might, His love might nourish us and grow us to maturity. And we love one another as Christ has loved us. That is, this prayer is the bridge between the deep theology of chapters 1 through 3 and the practical flow of that theology out into our lives in 4 through 6. This, this is the bridge. This is it. He's talking about the love of Christ. And I think he's pre-looking forward to that means you will love one another. The whole chapter 4 is going to be about one another, one another, one another, one another. How do we do the one another's? Because the love of Christ is our foundation. His soul is the root. We root into His soul which gives us our nourishment and we grow. So, we pray because our lives are rooted and established in love. Secondly, we pray, we see in the text that we pray so that we might understand the love of Christ with all the saints. So we look at verse 18. He continues, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The reason that I believe we have the, the first love in the text is the love of Christ is that second love in verse 19a. I'm praying this prayer that you may have the strength to comprehend the height and depth and width and length of the love of what? Christ. The love of Christ. And so that is the context that love is being used here. It's the foundation of our life is not our love, it's Christ's love. The, the soil that we grow out of is the love which Christ has and has instilled in us and strengthened us to have for others. Many have tried to assign a, a mystical meaning to this text. This is what they've done. Great men like Augustine, heroes of my faith, have done this. They write commentary about this passage. It's a very difficult passage, by the way. It's very hard in the original to understand how all these words connect. He uses a bunch of prepositional phrases. As any good English teacher will tell you, prepositional phrases, participles, these things are hard to understand. What do they modify? Do they go backwards in the text and modify something that he already said? Or do they go forward in the text and modify something that comes later? It's very difficult. But if you look at the translators, they've helped us here. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. So the context is saying, the translation is even telling us that the ground and the root of our life is love, that we may be strengthened to comprehend Not individually, but with the whole church, the love of Christ, which is high, deep, wide, and long. 
But what Augustine did is he couldn't find the meaning. He admits his frustration and he assigns a mystical meaning to it. Be careful. Your heroes aren't perfect. He turned this into a statement about the cross. He said what Paul's talking to us about is the cross. The height and the depth and the width and the length of the cross. Where he displays his love for us. I mean, that will preach. I just got to confess to you, that's tempting. Because, man, that thing lays out the outline he preaches this text on. It's beautiful. And everything is packed with power. It's just not what Paul was saying, I don't think. So it's not exposition. It's my my teaching. It's not Paul's teaching. I want to give you... I, I, I think there's several things that could be said here, but I just want to point you to the thing that I think helps us understand this text. John R.W. Stott, in his commentary, I think he explained it better than anyone. He said about verse 19... I mean, about verse 18, he said this. The love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all of mankind, both Jew and Gentile. Long enough to last for all of eternity. Deep enough to reach to the most degraded sinner. And high enough to exalt that sinner to heaven. That's what he's saying. I want you to understand, Paul's saying, Ephesian believer, I want you to understand that this love you are founded in, that you're rooted in, is high enough, long enough, wide enough, and deep enough that you will never pass away. It is enough. The love of Christ is enough to save you, to sanctify you, and to glorify you. There's nothing outside of His love in your life. And so, we think specifically about the trials of our life, I think. It's our temptation as humans, as weak humans, that when we face trial and tribulation, we begin to say, this can't be from God's love. And what Paul would say is, His love extends deep enough to sustain you when you are under great persecution and trial and tribulation. You may not feel loved at the moment, But He loves you. Our weak human condition causes us when we're at the peak of our lives and we feel the most energized to forget about Christ's love and to just glory in our own accomplishments. And Paul is saying, in that moment of idolatrous sin where you're glorying in yourself and not in Christ, His love is not lacking. He loves you. In the moment when your marriage is crushed and destroyed, your children hate you with a deep and passionate hatred. His love is wide enough to include you and them. His love will never fail. He wants us to know you pray because when you pray, this is who you're praying to is you're praying to a Christ who loves you this much. And I think, as I think about the text, it's helpful to me anyway. It's helpful for me to think this way. Paul's sentence structure here is so difficult. But it seems he is pressing the Ephesian believers to be strengthened by the Spirit, founded on love, and confident of the vast excellence of the love of Christ. That seems to be a good 
way for me to understand it, is that he's pressing them in a Trinitarian way to understand the love of Christ. That's, that's the best I can do. But these texts might help us a little further. As we look at these texts, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So when, I, when Paul speaks of the love of God, I believe he most uh, often is referring to the love of Christ, and it's like this text in John 3.16. For God in this way, that word so you see means in this way. God specifically loved the world by sending His Son. He's not a ushy-gushy, emotional mess, basket case in heaven, writing Hallmark cards. That's not who God is. God is a God who loved us in this way. He sent His Son. So I'd say to you, if you have rejected His Son, you have rejected the only offer of love from God you will ever receive. And it is foolish for you to bank eternity on a Hallmark card statement about the love of God. Some ushy-gushy, mushy, romantic, God loves me because, he, I, because I'm like a puppy. That's the way people talk about it. I'm so cute, I'm like a puppy, I'm lovable. No! The next text is going to help us understand the way we were. The way we were. It's sad, but... So many in our day are confused on this concept of the love of God. I don't want you to be confused. It is high, it is deep, it is wide, and it is long. But it is specific. And it is expressed through Christ, His Son. He says this, For while we were still weak, in Romans 5, verse 6, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for lovable little puppy characters. He died for sinners. We were unlovable. We weren't puppies. We were on the trash heap, the garbage pen, and Christ loved us enough to die for us. You weren't somehow kind of good. Neither was I. We were unlovable. We stunk the high heavens. We made God's wrath boil. And yet, He loved us. At the right time, for sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be justified, or shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, we were not little lovable humans. We were the enemies of God. You were the enemy of God. I hated God. And yet Christ died for us. That's what the text says. For if, while we were enemies, we were brought to God, reconciled to God by the death of His Son much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So, this love that Paul writes about that is high and deep and long and wide is the love expressed to us in Christ. 
His Son. It is not a general love. It is not a love that, you know, somehow overlooks our faults and failures and loves us anyway, sweeps it under the carpet, says bygones be bygones. It is a love that calls the Son of God to come in the flesh, live a sinless life, and die a sinner's death, a condemned man's death on a cross. Your sin and my sin did that. Paul, even in his prayer life, doesn't ever want anyone to forget the love of Christ. Christ's love is enough. But you must receive His love. You must be saved by that love. You must be rescued from your sin through His love. Finally, we see in the text that we pray by God's Spirit through His Son, for His glory. So, they may be, so that we may become reflections of God's character. Verse 19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I love when Paul writes like that. I want you to know something that's impossible for you to know. What does he mean? It's impossible for anyone in here outside of the revelation of the Spirit of God, to understand what Paul's talking about. If you're in here right now, and I'm not a fool, there probably are lost people, men, women, children, sitting right here in this pews. And I just described to you the love of Christ, and it made you mad. And what angered you was, it's too narrow. It ought to include more people. There ought to be a wider way. Or, it saddened you because... In your heart, you really could care less about Christ. You want heaven and all of the inheritance that are there without Him. And so when I talk about the love of Christ, it angers you, it makes you sad, but it does not cause joy to rise up. It does not cause your heart to say, Oh, the love of Christ. It has surpassed your knowledge. This love is beyond human thinking. It's beyond us. For I want you to know what is humanly impossible to know. What is humanly impossible to know, Paul? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now what I'm about to say, if there were not a scripture text to prove it, would cause everyone in here to put me on the stake for being a heretic. What Paul is saying at the end of this statement is so crucial. I want the fullness of God to dwell in you, church. The fullness of God? Paul uses this term very carefully in his writings. I didn't put this scripture up there for you, but it just came to my mind. Look at, hold your place in Ephesians and turn to Colossians 1. Remember, Ephesians and Colossians are sister letters. They're written about the same time, from the same location, from the same writer, Paul, to a very similar audience, one at Colossus, one at Ephesus. And this is, this is what we read in verse 19. For in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Back, hold your place and you can keep looking at Colossians if you want to. Paul says in Ephesians 3, 
Verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you, Ephesus church, Gentile and Jew, you, Grace Fellowship, might, or that, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ, and now Paul's saying, I want this same fullness to dwell in you. Why did I say it could be taken very heretically? He's not saying that we are becoming gods. But what he is saying is that God's original intent when he created Adam was that Adam would be what? His image bearer, right? In Genesis chapter 1, what did God say? Let us make man in our what? Image. So he made him male and female. He created them male and female. He wanted to make them in his image. When Adam and Eve were on the earth, their intent, their purpose was to bring the glory of God into full revelation worldwide as His image bearers. Without sin, Adam and Eve would have continued to propagate into their children this unbroken image so that as a humanity, the fullness of God would dwell on the earth. So that I could look at you and see the character of God and you could look at me and see the character of God. That was man's high place and calling. But then he sinned. And what Paul is praying for in Ephesians 3 is the end result of being reversed and reconciled back to God. The sin is now removed. And in glory, man in the church, the church will be the image of God. That which was lost in the fall is reclaimed in Christ and applied to not all of humanity, but to the church. So much so that in the new heavens and the new earth, all sin is gone. And when Christ looks at His bride, He sees Himself. And when His bride looks at Him, they see the Father. Then you will be known as you, then you will know as you are known. When we stand in front of Him, John says in 1 John, we will be like Him. That's what Paul's praying for. Even now, church, he's saying, do not settle for sin, but look like the image of your Father. I'm praying that God would make the fullness of Himself dwell in you. So when I look at you, I see a character of God. And when you look at me, you see the character of God. We're not God, but we carry His character. Because His fullness is pleased to dwell in us. In His Son, Jesus Christ. The final statement I would make about this is that God pouring His character into us changes us and transforms us into Christ's image that we might be for His glory. For His glory. That statement is made specifically, if you want to know where, in Romans 8... You just jot down the, we're not going to read it, Romans 8, beginning in verse 28 and going through verse 31. 
That is the purpose of our salvation, that we would be the image of Christ. And how does that look? What practical thing might we take from this sermon? As if we needed another practical thing. I want to close and bring to an end this by giving you a one another. So, as a benedictory statement for the sermon, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. If Paul's prayer is to be true in Grace Fellowship, if it is to be true in your marriage, in how you raise your children, in how you respect and honor your mother and father, if his prayers be true at work with your co-workers and your boss, 1 Corinthians 13 must be true. And this is the benediction. <clears throat> Let's stand. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, the love of Christ, he's saying, the agape love of God, the love which our lives are founded on and rooted in, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I'm delivered over, to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So what is love? What is love to one another? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, because it is the love of Christ which is high and deep and wide and long. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, when the kingdom of God is in its full glory, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we see face to face. The fullness of God will dwell in the church when His kingdom has come. And we will see Him face to face. Now I know in part, because the knowledge is surpassing all my knowledge, but then... I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these, the one that will last for all of eternity, is love. Because faith will be fulfilled, and hope will be realized, and love will endure forever. That's the prayer of Paul for the church. That's our call. Let's go and love one another because Christ's love is our foundation and our soul which gives us nourishment that we might love the way He is loved. You're dismissed.